You can have a seat, and that is our prayer. God, we just pray that you would show us your way and your heart and your glory today. Amen. Good morning. How are you? If we haven't met before, my name's Rob. I'm really excited you're here. Uh, I got to live out this message all week, and uh, so my throat's really dry, and uh, I'm probably a little nervous, but um, we've been talking about being created and what we're created for, and this week as we talk about being made for community, uh, I got to hang out with a lot of people. We mean created for relationships. I got to spend time with people, got to have conversations with people, and, and really got to live this out, and now I'm like, oh, my throat hurts and stuff, so... We'll see how it goes. Um, when, when we talk about being made for community, when we talk about discovering what we're made for, um, have you ever thought about, like, just for the sake of argument, why you came today? I'm glad you're here. But have you thought about, like, what propelled me to come to this place this morning? Like, we could have watched a pretty good church on the Internet. Um, I know a few. <laughs> we could have, like, watched a televangelist. We can talk more about that later. <laughs> but why were you not content to stay home and instead drawn here? Uh, I think that it's because we have this desire to be in relationship with other people. We really truly believe that we're not meant to be alone. We might not know what that means, but we feel like that's the case. And so um, when I research stuff, science and psychology has done a ton of work in this area. Oh, yeah, I can be intellectual. Um, like, John Bowlby was the pioneer in this, and he developed ideas which, for the first time in years, challenged Freud's idea that Freud would say we're, we were driven by our desires, our drives. And John Bowlby said, no, 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 I think we're driven by our relationships. And he observed these infants that needed to attach to a primary caregiver. Didn't necessarily have to be mom, but if these infants didn't attach to some kind of caregiver, their emotional state, their ability to handle things just diminished. And this was called attachment theory. And, and since uh, about the 1940s, this has gained huge credibility and scientific acceptance to this idea that we need to be attached to someone and be in relationship. Now, hopefully you're saying, well, yeah, but doesn't the Bible say that? And I'd say, yes, it does. In Genesis, God creates the heavens, and he creates the earth, and then he breathes life into this first man. And everything was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and then all of a sudden it wasn't good, even though nothing bad had happened. In Genesis 2.18, God says, it's not good for this human being to be alone. So I'm going to make a helper just right for him. So I don't think it was that the man was alone because the Genesis story says, you know, as, as he makes this man and he forms him, then he makes these other creatures and he comes along and he names them. So it's like, okay, here's a friend and here's a friend and here's a friend. It's not that he was alone. It's that he was lonely. And that's completely different. I think that um, sometimes being alone is a spiritual thing. I think it's a discipline. I think it's refreshing. Um, I think it's a good thing. But being lonely, that's yeah, just totally different. Do you remember the last time you were lonely? I mean, Adam was lonely. There was, it wasn't just that these animals or creatures were all around. It was that there was no one that was kind of equal in mind and in body and spirit to be with him. 
loneliness, as, as it's defined, is without friends or companions. So I looked it up on the web, on the web and I got this, this quote. Um, if you find yourself struggling with loneliness, you're not alone. And yet, you are alone. So, very alone. And then it says, click on your website to find out more. The website's name? I'm not making this up. www.despair.com. Now, I'm sorry to laugh, but I'm glad you did too, because if it would have been awkward silence, I would have felt guilty for laughing, because I'm looking at the internet going, <laughs> And then at the same moment, I like have this tear, because I remember the times in my life where I was utterly, utterly alone. No friends, no companions, like fourth grade, walking into the lunchroom, no one. I just ticked off my best friend, and he's like, that's it, we're done. And I walked in, I didn't feel like I could fit anywhere. And then in seventh grade, I said something to someone that got twisted and twisted and twisted, because that never happens in seventh grade. And all of a sudden, now, before I know it, by the end of the day, I'm going to be in this fight after school. And, and I'm like, I don't, I don't want to go, f number one, I don't know how to fight. <laughs> I mean, number two, I, I mean, it's bad. Number two, uh, I don't, I don't want to fight. I don't, I don't think it's going to solve it. And, and, and Brian is like a foot taller than me who I'm supposed to fight. For some reason, I'm not sure. But I remember walking out of, the, out of the school hoping that no one would see me because I just wanted to go hide. And then they found me. And so they're leading me. And it's not a friend or companion. It's just some guy who wants to see a fight and like pushing me into this ring of people. And I'm like, I have no one to back me up. I have no companion here. So I remember what those times are. And they can vividly come back to me. The emotions can come back. And it's hard. So even though we laugh at despair, um, we realize that it's a reality for some people. Now, what about you? When I speak of loneliness, where does your mind go? I mean, if we agree that maybe we're made for community, maybe we're supposed to be in relationships, in the sense that it's not good for us to be alone, then, then what goes through your mind when, I think of or when we talk of loneliness? And what goes through your mind when I talk of being made for community? Like, do you think, when I say made for community, like, I don't get it. Does he mean, like, we're supposed to be married, or we're supposed to have friends, or, or is that about church? Or do you think, is he going to tell me that I have to like everyone here? Um, maybe. When I say made for community, do you think, uh, you know, I've never really found a true friend at church? I've tried, to, I've tried this church thing, but I've never really found someone I can be myself with. Um, do you think, you know what, if people really knew who I was, I don't, I don't think they would like me. I don't think they'd accept me, and I certainly don't think they would love me. Um, so today, I believe that God does say we're made for community, but we'll look at why, and then we'll look at what that means for restoration. And then we have a tangible example of how someone experienced that. So, let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunities to live out what your word says. I pray that during this time, it wouldn't just be about hearing your word, God, but it would be about your spirit 
transforming us, speaking to us by your word in your power. So let mine words kind of fade away and let your word remain in us to, to make us into the people, into the restored image bearers that you want to have in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, we're going to ha- be in a couple different places today. And so you can turn to Genesis 2. And if you don't have a Bible, but you have a Bible on your phone, go ahead and take that out. But if you're just going to text, then put it away. <laughs> so in Genesis 2, we hear kind of this intimate encounter of creation. Genesis 2.18 says, like we said before, it's not good for the man to be alone, so I'll make an equal or a helper who's just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground wild animals, birds of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and he chose a name for them. He gave a name to the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to the wild animals, but still no one who was his equal or no one who was just right for him. So he caused the man to fall asleep, and as he slept, the Lord took out one of his ribs, closed the opening, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. And he said, at last, there is one that's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she is taken out of man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The two become one, and the man and the woman were both naked, and they felt no shame. So this, this is the way we were created to be. As he says, at last, someone who understands me, someone who gets me, and they were both naked and they felt no shame, like there was no loneliness, like they were fully known to each other and fully accepted by God and by each other. Can you imagine a relationship, whether it's a marriage or a friendship, that doesn't have any shame, that doesn't have any guilt, that doesn't have any lies, that doesn't have any, any hiding involved in it. Now, I really thought when we took this picture, do we have that one? I think we have that one. Mm-hmm, sorry. It's, when we took that picture, I'm like, oh, yeah, we both love God, and we both loved each other. Of course there's not going to be any shame or hiding or guilt or lies. If you're married, you're like, yeah, right. <laughs> um, it just isn't the case. That's not the world we live in. So when we see this verse um, that says, the man and the woman were both naked and they felt no shame, what does that mean? I mean, why, why the significance of nakedness? That's just awkward. Um, well, I think it's because the Bible uses this sexual language Um, Because the writer's trying to describe what an intimate, honest relationship is. And in Hebrew, when you use the word knowing someone, what you're saying is that, that that they know, like they're engaged in an intimate act, a sexual act, a marriage act. And so it says like, um, Noah knew his wife, and then they had three boys. So it's trying to describe this kind of intimacy that we should have both physically and spiritually. But I think Genesis 2 is going beyond just marriage. I think marriage is an illustration of Genesis 2. I think it's an application of Genesis 2. But I don't think it's the pinnacle of all relationships. I mean, marriage is very important. I want to stress that. But I think as Genesis 2 is talking about intimate, honest, open relationships, it's talking about friendships. It's talking about 
one another relationships. And so I think there, any relationship can be non-sexual, but authentic and accepting and honest. Relationships that are not filled with shame or guilt or hiding or lies. That's how God designed relationships to be, not just with him, but also with each other. And, and yet, we don't always experience that. Because the first man and the first woman, they doubted God's goodness and they sinned. And when I say they sinned, it means they thought they knew better than God. They thought they could live independent of God. They kind of doubted if he really had their best interests in mind. And I think humanity has never been the same since. People have lived as broken image bearers. If you've been with us through the series, we had um, mirrors, and then we had shattered mirrors, and then we had shattered mirrors on a cross. Um, People have lived as these broken image bearers of God, and we've seen wars, and we've seen hatred, and we've seen lies, and we've seen deceit, and we've seen murder, and we've seen slander, and I could keep going until the Packers game. And people in the past and the present, they've lived in this world of hurt and this world of tears and this world of loneliness. And maybe today you're here and you're like, "Mm -hmm, that's me. I'm lonely. I'm hurt. I have tears when no one else is looking. It's hard. I don't feel like anyone gets it. If that's you, if your world is filled with those things um, and you just have a really hard time believing that God would allow that suffering, or maybe you even think that God causes that suffering. Um, Let me just tell you, I believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God. And yet, um, I don't think the question is, is, does he allow it or does he cause it? I think the more important thing is that he cares, that he's present. And if you go through and you read the scriptures about when people are most suffering, you find that they, they are crying out to God. They believe that God is there. And I believe that he's there and he's present in any of that suffering. And you're not alone in that. And so if you're in a place where you just feel that right now, I just need to stop and say, he does care. He is present. You're not alone with him. And it's okay to be honest about that. We can handle it. God can surely handle it. But we have these sh- this shattered world that we live in, and it just kind of stays the same until Jesus comes. But then we see in the, in the gospel story of Jesus that, that God remedies this problem when Jesus gets hung on this cross, and, and he pays for this sin, and when he was killed, he restored what was broken between God and between others. He gave his perfect life for our imperfect life. And his death conquered death, and his death conquered sin. And so we celebrate that at Easter, but some of us can celebrate that every day. That, that our sin is forgiven, that, that this brokenness has been restored, that we do have access to this all-loving, all-knowing creator. And yet it's not just about God and us. That truth should impact everything we do. So because God restores us, there should somehow, it should matter in our relationships with each other. Somehow the world shouldn't be filled with these lies and these hatreds and this deceit. And I think we get that. So what does that look like and how do we do that? Jesus, of anyone, of anyone who could have lived without friends, it should have been the Son of God, right? 
I mean, he was the son of God. So, and yet we see that he doesn't do that. We see he chooses companions. He finds others to be with him. He even picks leftovers and B squad and JV to do ministry with him. And at the end of his life, um, it's John 15, if you're following along. At the end of his life, he takes these guys who he's, he's been with for almost three years. He brings them together. It's like the night before he's going to die. And he says, this, guys, this is it. Like, this is, this is kind of the pinnacle. If you forget nothing else, remember this commandment. Love each other in the way that I loved you. There's, in fact, there's no greater love than someone who will lay down their life for one's friend. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I don't call you slaves, even though you might call me master. A master doesn't confide in his slaves. No, now you are my friends. Since I have told you everything the Father has told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I pointed you to bear lasting fruit. So this is my commandment. Love each other. He later says, the world will know that I am true. The world will know that God sent me, Jesus says, if you love each other. It's like this restoration with God has an impact on our relationships together. So the best way to see what that looks like for, for our lives together today, I think, is in 1 John 1. Um, I think it has definite implications for how we do life together as a new church starting out as a community known as Restoration. I think it has huge life together. So in 1 John 1, it says this. It says, if we're living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, now it says, if we're living in the light, and what that is, the language there is like, if we're living right with God day by day, that's kind of what the, the language is saying. If we're living right day by day, then we have fellowship. It should say with God. Like that would logically follow. If we're living in the light, if we're right with God, then we have fellowship with God. And if we're not living in the light, then we don't have fellowship with God. It's broken. But it doesn't say that. It says, if we're living in the light, if we're living right with God, then we have fellowship with each other. Why, why does it say that? Why, why the switch? I think because it's trying to get this point across that true community comes from God. As much as, as I like love the YMCA, um, as much as I you know, want to be in the Lions Club or the Rotary, um, that's never going to be true community unless it comes from God. They can do lots of great things. My wife's rolling her eyes at me, but she's like, you're not going to be in the Lions Club. <laughs> But true community must come from God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is like the spiritual guru in, in faith and community. And he says it this way. He says, um, our community must be a spiritual reality. It's not some like pie in the sky idea. Like it's real, it's here, and yet it has this emphasis, this point of the divine. It's the spiritual reality. 
So if our relationship is right with God, then our relationships can be right together. I think it's more than a spiritual reality, though. I mean, I think Bonhoeffer's right, and he kind of goes on to say the next point is true community is not just a spiritual reality, but it's where a spiritual reality is lived out. That's why we say that one of our values is Christ-centered. Because this, this spiritual reality, this relationship with God has to affect everything we do. Not in a legalistic way, not in a show me what you do and I'll believe in your relationship with God. But if we truly have said, okay, God, your grace is enough for us, then that should start to permeate all of our lives. We should become a more generous person in every way because the God of huge generosity has given to us. And so it just says that, that our life becomes under the management of Jesus and he starts to go, okay, I'm going to manage that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to manage that in a really loving way. And that gets lived out. And the Holy Spirit transforms us. The verse, verses continue in verse 8. If we claim to have no sin, then we're just fooling ourselves and we're not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, then we're calling God a liar showing him that his word has no place in our lives. That's kind of heavy. If we claim to have no sin, we're just fooling ourselves. True community is a place where we practice authenticity. It's a place where we can be real. It's a place where if we claim to have no sin, we're just fooling ourselves. It's a place where we can take masks off, where we don't have to pretend like we're someone else. So as I'm hanging out with people this week and and inevitably something comes up that's like kind of dark or kind of messy in their life. And they're like, oh, you probably think this. Like as if I somehow wouldn't accept them or, or that wasn't okay. I'm like, no, that's fine. It's not my place. Um, I'm just listening. Because Jesus was the most, most authentic person because he was the same all the time. It's not like when he hung out with his disciples, he was one guy. And then when he went over and hung out with the religious leaders, he like pretended he was somebody else. And then when he hung out with his mom, he pretended he was somebody else. He was, granted, he might have said a few different things to these groups, but he was the same person all the time in each of these arenas. And if you've ever tried to figure this out, like yourself, like it took me till I was 30 to go, I think I'm okay just the way I am. I mean, more or less, like, I don't have to try and impress someone else. I'm like, why did it take so long? But some of you are, are older than me, and you're going, I still haven't figured that out. Not judging, I'm just saying. And once we figure that out, once we start to practice that authenticity, we start to feel comfortable with this God and with each other and go, I don't have to pretend. Now, I didn't say community is, true community is where we force authenticity, or where we force disclosure. Like, that's what cults do. This is not a cult, okay? This is a Christian or a, a, a Christ-following community. And we invite authenticity. We invite people to take off their masks. But we never force that. Um, people have been hurt by, by the church or by churches who've tried to force that. And then it's come back and bit them. 
we're not about that. But we are about letting people practice authenticity, letting people practice disclosure, taking those masks off and seeing acceptance, finding acceptance. And that's another thing, I guess, is true community is a place where we can be accepted. If we claim to have no sin, we're fooling ourselves. But if we confess, he is faithful and he'll forgive us. We can find that acceptance from God. So why wouldn't we have that with each other? In true community, we have that with each other. So you got a puzzle piece when you came in. Or if you didn't, sorry, you're supposed to. And, and have you ever like had a, a puzzle and you put it together and you're one short? And you're just like, ah! I, my son and I, he has this um, superheroes puzzle. And it's a, a 24-piece puzzle, and we have 23 of the pieces. And there's eight characters on it, and he puts it together, and he gets, like, 23rd piece, and he's like, Dad, I can't finish Iceman, which part of me is just proud that he knows the superheroes. But I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. It's like, it doesn't work. Acceptance is, it, I think, acceptance in true community is that we look at each other's puzzle pieces and go, ah, oh, that's kind of funky, but it's needed. And we accept you. And if your puzzle piece has been, like, chewed on by a little kid, um, or our dog got one, and so it always looks like the rejected piece, there is no rejected piece in true community. The puzzle will not fit together when we go have lunch and we do it right over there. We put the puzzle together, so you'll take your pieces over there. It will not work if we don't put our piece in. You're valued here, and we accept you here. And in true community, we find that. That's why one of our values is accepting. It doesn't mean like, I'm okay, you're okay, do whatever you want. Like, there's no truth. But it does mean accepting people where they're at. And saying, you know what, it wasn't Jesus' job to judge you, so I'm certainly not going to judge you. But rather than accusing or judging someone, when someone confesses something or reveals a mask that, where there's some ugliness, we walk alongside them and we stand under God's forgiveness together. And we claim that grace that's enough for us. We claim that acceptance that's enough for us. We claim that forgiveness that's enough for us. And when we practice that, it's amazing. Maybe you've been in, in, a, in a church before, or maybe you've been in a group before that's been an amazing group together. Um, it probably was a smaller group. It's really hard to do this if there's a thousand people. It's really hard to do this if there's a hundred people. But yet, yet Jesus, like he chose these 12 and he was with them and they got to practice this. And if you've gotten to be in a group that's like around 12, you may have experienced this. We're going to, um, at Restoration, we're going to call these things life groups, and, um, and we're not going to pretend like they're going to be perfect. We're not going to create this little ethereal ideal of plastic people. Um, they're going to be messy. They're going to be hard, because we're messy, and we're hard. But I think if we really, really look at what the scripture says, what First John is saying here, and we say, okay. I'll put my puzzle piece in, even if it's a little chewed. I think 
we'll find out a spiritual reality that we've never experienced. I think we'll find authenticity that we've never experienced. I think we'll find acceptance that we've never experienced before. And all of a sudden, this God thing that somehow seems to be abstract and hard will somehow come down and be tangible and real. Um, Tim and Naomi are going to come up, and Tim and Naomi are friends. They're part of Restoration, and they're going to share, like, in a tangible way, kind of all these abstract things that I've been talking about. So, Tim and Naomi. Many of you know that Naomi and I have three daughters, uh, Bria, Adrian, and Kyla. You may not know that three and a half years ago, we lost our son, Jonathan. Naomi and I want to share with you some things that we've learned through that, through that experience. These are not things that we have not known or not understood before, but we've gained a different perspective, uh, a different experience to look through. Jonathan has made an impact on our life, and he will have an ongoing and lasting effect um, of how we view things and how we respond to the world around us. One of the most difficult things I had to do was tell our girls that Jonathan had been born, but had died and gone, and gone to heaven. As Bria, our then five-year-old, was crying, she asked if we got to hold Jonathan. And I said, yes, we did. And she responded by saying, well, I want to hold him too. We talked about that and how he was in heaven, and, and we cried together. And as she cuddled in my arms, Bria said, Daddy, please take my back because it helps me when I'm sad. As I've reflected on that, I've seen that I have much to learn about accepting help from others. We are taught to be independent and self-reliant, but the reality of life is that we're not. We need other people, people that care about us, people that want to help us. I need family and friends, sometimes more than others, for the mundane, to the tender, to the life-changing. I've also learned that by letting people help me, I'm allowing them to share my pain and joy, to walk with me shoulder to shoulder. They can encourage me, support me, tell me when I need to rest, and tell me when I need to go forward. It's humbling, but a necessary part of being God's child, tickling Bria's back that day as we cuddled was a small thing, but it helped me share in her sorrow. I very distinctly remember our families and small group arriving at the hospital that day. There was nothing to do but be with us. But by being there, by sharing our pain and our loss with us, we felt how much they loved and cared for us. Those few, mom those few moments of holding Jonathan being surrounded by our families and friends was a, just a small part of how they journeyed with us. As parents, we start dreaming about the life of our child soon after we learn that we're expecting. What will he look like? Will his interests be in line with Tim's? Well, how will he fit in with three older sisters? <laughs> Rob has talked about shattered dreams, and our dreams certainly shattered that Wednesday morning. On that Sunday evening, Mother's Day 2007, 
while bring, being brought to the hospital, I had an incredible sense of peace. It was as though I had heard God tell me that our boy was going to be all right. For the next four days, I fully believed it. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't worry about losing Jonathan. I had a peace that this whole ordeal was going to turn out fine for all of us. When the doctors decided that I would stay in the hospital until our baby was delivered, and they had hoped that would be many weeks, I had peace. Even as nurses were bringing me to the ICU on Tuesday, I had peace. It wasn't until that my body went into labor and I delivered our son that I realized our dreams for our boy were shattered. After Jonathan was born, I begged the doctors to help him. They couldn't. And all I could say to Tim was, our baby. We wept and we held our little boy. Shortly after that, I was wheeled away to surgery. And when I returned, holding our son, our family, and our small group were all there. It was an overwhelming feeling of love that filled that room. There were so many faces of love and understanding, sadness, and compassion that surrounded us. I was in the hospital a total of four days. And during those days, our small group was working overtime to care for our family and one another. dear friend took more than her share of a child care duty. And when you put our three kids with their three kids, that's three sets of twins. <laughs> Meals started being planned for my family. More child care being coordinated. I didn't need to worry about my family because my small group family was taking care of it. I had believed that all was going to be all right. And once I was home, I struggled with the fact that it was not all right. I was very honest with God about my pain at that point. I held nothing back. I yelled at him a lot. And that's what he wants from us with every communication, was full and total honesty. I let him know how mad I was, how I thought he had let me down, I struggled with questions like, does he not love me? Why would he take our little boy? And even through my cries, God began to calm my heart and answer me. Small things like a phone call from a small group friend, just checking in. Our community was there to reach out and help meet our emotional and physical needs even before we were aware of what they were. Each time I tried to be mad at God, he provided another reminder that he loves us. He would show us that he cares for us in the midst of our tragedies. We were in an amazing small group at that time. God brought five families together and wove us into one. We did our lives together. Those four other couples were an integral part of our healing process. I've marveled at how God brought people into our lives at different times. The fall before we lost Jonathan, a new couple joined our small group. The Lord knew it was an oh, sorry. Their story includes the loss of their baby at 21 weeks, just like ours. It was not a coincidence that God brought them to our lives at that point. It was certainly God's providence. 
the Lord knew that they would be there to hold their hands through the details of losing a child, that she would be there when I needed to talk but didn't have words to say. She would understand without explanation the hurt that filled me inside. God showed us love through a longtime friend of Tim's parents. When we lost our baby, she called us almost every day to check in. She was mama number three. She served out of love for God, love for her friend, and love for me. It's astonishing the great lengths that others went to to care for our family. A couple of women from our church did our laundry. We really didn't know them well enough at the time <laughs> for them to wash our family's undergarments. <laughs> but they knew. They knew we needed help. Women brought meals. They came and hung out with me after Tim had to return to work. They helped me care for my children. Put on a birthday party for Bria. Cleaned our house. And were simply there for us. God's love through this community helped me bring Help me begin the process of rebuilding after our loss. God used this community to give me a tangible touch of his love. I was amazed with the care we received from our church family, our small group, our physical family. We received cards and calls from so many people. People who knew us well and those who didn't all sent words of encouragement, sorrow, compassion, and understanding. We are very thankful for the community that God used to help us rebuild after this experience. Being able to share our lives, our pain, and our joy with our family and our small group has made an impact on our lives that is difficult to express in words. We are so thankful. Even though the pain and sorrow of losing Jonathan will stay with us, we are grateful. We're grateful for all that we learned through his life. Um, thank you, Tim and Naomi. And, uh, and actually what's really cool is even before God knew this church, like only God knew this church was going to form. And then he was telling me that this church was going to form. And then I was telling them that this church was going to form. Um, they're here today. Um, three of which are part of restoration. So would you guys stand? And then one of which moved and they came back just for today. So you were a part of Tim and Naomi's small group. Would you just stand up for us? Just, I want, not because I want to say, like, aren't these people great? Um, but because, um, like I said, even before, you can sit down. <laughs> you can see that we get along. Um, because even before this started, uh, God knew what Tim and Naomi needed. And God knew what each couple needed and it wasn't about couples or singles or younger or older it just like we ended up together and I think when that happens when we end up together and we say okay we're going to practice a whole lot of grace because sometimes people are just extra grace required and you go oh boy and you say God's grace to them because God's grace to them and when we care and when we grow and when we serve together, which is what we want our life groups to do, we find out in real, real ways that God's grace is enough. So that's why we're singing this song that we're about to sing, and so we can proclaim 
that as we're in life together, his grace is enough. So would you stand with us as we close? Yeah, we, we don't clap for the band, although they were great. We clap for God and his grace being enough in our lives. Psalm 133 says, How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live in harmony together. That is what we want. So you have two cards. One's information and one's life groups. And we hope you can stay for lunch. I'm going to pray for lunch. And if you can stay, that's great. Um, you can put your puzzle piece over on that far table right there, and we'll see if we can actually make the puzzle. Um, but if you would, if, if you've been, like, if God's just kind of prompting you, this is an emotional appeal, this is a spiritual thing. If God's prompting you to say, okay, I'm going to put my piece in, doesn't mean I'm committing myself forever to a life group for life. It just means I'm, I'm, I'm interested in experiencing life together. Um, would you fill out those cards and, and put them either back there or back there? And if you want to do an offering, you can do that too. So may you be covered in God's love today. And you may share that covering with others. Um, God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for um, you and your grace being enough in our lives. I thank you for Tim and Naomi and such a tangible expression of how you love them. And how you not only love them yourself, you instead used others to show them that love. Um, God, as we, as we dine together and commune together and eat together, um, may that expression of your grace being enough um, spread out over what we say and what we do. And um, we just praise you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.